You're listening to The Crunch with Cam Slater. Right here on RCR, Reality Check Radio. David Farah is, in my opinion, New Zealand's best pollster. He's forgotten more than others know about polling. And David's going to explain now the effect of the wasted vote, how seats are allocated, and why it's important to choose who you vote for carefully so that your vote is not wasted. Welcome, David, back to The Crunch. Hey, great to be back, Cam. So I had Sandra Gowdy on my show a couple of weeks ago, and we were talking about the wasted vote. And Sandra was saying that uh, if you vote for a party that doesn't make the 5% threshold or win an electorate seat, effectively your vote doesn't count. And worse than that, let's say there was a party, let's call it the Black Party, uh, let's say they got 3% but didn't meet the threshold and didn't win a seat. That's effectively four seats that then, due to the calculations of MMP and the rules, get reallocated to the other parties. Was that statement true or false? The statement's basically true. It's not quite that they're reallocated, but Sandra's quite correct that your vote, if it's for a party that doesn't meet the threshold, will not determine seats in Parliament. It, it, it will go to those seats that would have gone to that party will go to other parties. Right. So let's put a scenario together so that so that listeners can understand. We've got, let's say, a red party, blue party, yellow party, green party, black party, and then we've got, say, let's say freedom A, freedom B, and freedom C, right? Yeah. So red, blue, green, yellow, and black all get across the 5% threshold. So their uh, seats are determined by the percentage of the vote that they got. There's a formula, but it's basically proportional to their vote. Key thing here is on election night, you see all the tables. Everyone vote gets counted, right? Yes. In last election, there were 18 parties or something. So your vote is counted and it gets put up on a table. But what they then do is they say, have you got over 5%? Yes, no. Or have you won an electorate seat? Yes, no. If the answer to both of them is no, they then throw those parties away for the purpose yeah. of allocating seats. So the votes count that they're up on a table, but when it comes to who gets seats, any votes for those parties are literally disregarded. So if you've got, say, Freedom B parties gets 3%, because people want to vote for a party that reflects their views about freedoms and rights and all of those sorts of things, yeah. but it gets 3%. That's effectively four seats that that represents. What happens to those four seats because they didn't reach the threshold or win an electorate seat? What happens to those four seats? Effectively what happens is not that they're literally taken off them and given to other parties, but the way the formula works Mm. is very roughly two of those seats will go to centre-right parties and two of those seats were going to centre-left parties. So if we take your Freedom Party, if what's motivating you is you hated what the government did over COVID, and you vote for a party that doesn't make the 5%, effectively, half of those votes will help government parties get re-elected. 
and half will go to the other side. It's not quite as simple as that because it depends how many actual mm. votes blue, red, green get. But what it means is you get no seats. The other parties, instead of having 116 seats to split between them, get 120 seats between them. So those four seats are going to go to one of the parties that made the threshold. So if you are a voter that wants to send a message against the government and you're supporting one of these minor parties that doesn't look like it is going to get across the threshold, how can you ensure then that you are voting against the government? The most certain way is you vote for a party that is certain to make the threshold Mm -hmm. and has explicitly stated they're going to throw the government out. Where you get a bit of judgment is if you've got a party near the threshold, you have to make a call, well, I prefer them to one of these other parties bound to make the 5%. So do I think they'll make it? And here's what my general rule of thumb is. Look, you know, keep looking at the polls during the campaign. I've never seen a party that's been polling under 3% suddenly in a surprise make 5% on election night. Yeah. Now, you have suddenly had things change, like Peter Dunn had an amazing leaders debate and he went from 1% to 6% in the polls. But you saw that happen in the polls. There is a sort of not quite exception to my rule of under 3%. Really, actually, I've never seen a party under 4% end up making 5 with the exception being New Zealand first, because... Winston is such a known quantity and so good at publicity, antagonizes the media. Mm. So my general rule of thumb is if you're under 3%, you're not going to make it. If you're 3 to 4%, you're not going to make it unless maybe you're Winston. If you're over 4%, then there's a reasonable chance you can make it. You know, polls and margin of errors, et cetera. So if you really like that party, it's worthwhile. But if you're under 3%, it's very, very rare that makes it. The one who came closest was Colin Craig in 2000. And I'm not sure if it was 11 or 14, Cam, but he was actually polling between 4 and 5%. And he might have made 5% if he hadn't had his press secretary resign. It's yeah. something you know about. I know a bit about that, yeah. <laughs> you know, the week before the election with some allegations there, et cetera. But he had been polling at that 4% mark quite consistently for some months. Yeah. And we're not seeing that, are we, for anybody that would be nominally labelled a Freedom Party? You know, you, no. we're talking about Democracy New Zealand, NZ Loyal. New Conservatives. New Conservatives. None of them are breaking the even the 1%, are they, with the exception maybe of top? Yeah, top sometimes get to 2 3%. Sometimes you'll see an individual poll might have them at two, two and a half percent. I always say, and I include this with mine in there, don't just go off the courier poll, average the polls out to really yeah. get an idea of, of, of that. Because when you're talking a poll of a thousand people, you know, two and a half percent is 25 people. So you might have just had a dozen people that week who were a bit more friendly. What you really want to be looking out for is they're getting above three percent in more than one poll. And so then it comes down to compromises, doesn't it? You have to look at a party and you say, well, these are the things that are important to me. If I get 80 percent of those, 
I'd be happy with that because no one's going to get a party that gives them 100% of what they want. Not really. Oh, absolutely. Well, there was a great saying, Keith Holyoke, when he was prime minister, said he only agreed with 80% of what his own government did. Now, I always remarked, and of course you knew him too, that Muldoon, I suspect, was agreed with 100% of what his government did. He was such a domineering figure. Mm. You think about the US, like in 2016, people had a choice between Hillary and Donald, right? Yeah, and two that, bad choices. <laughs> yeah, that was what people felt. But some of them then voted for the Green candidate or the Libertarian candidate, right? Mm. And if you're a left-wing voter and you voted for the Green candidate because you really didn't like Hillary, well, you got Donald Trump elected. And likewise, you know, in 2000, Al Gore lost the election because some people on the left voted for him over George W. Bush. So, yeah, look, if you... It's, I'm all for you vote for the party closest to your principles, absolutely. Yeah. But if you actually think the country is desperately in need of change, so it's not just like, oh, I could be happy with four or five parties, I have a slight preference for party A, but mm. you really think the incumbent government's terrible, you really have to think about, okay, do I stand on my principles here or do I make sure I get a change of government? even if it's my second or third choice party. Right. And that's, I think, where a lot of people who are listeners to this show are finding themselves, they're mired and supporting a party that has no chance of meeting the threshold or winning an electorate seat. You know, Democracy New Zealand's got everything pinned on Matt King winning in Northland. We've seen two polls in Northland that say that's not going to happen. Um, there's likely to be a one coming soon. No, a third one coming soon. Don't know what it will say. We haven't started it yet. Yeah, but you you deal with probabilities and margins and that your gut feel says it's not going to change an awful lot. Um, I'd be surprised if who the leading candidate changes. It will be interesting to see how some of the others are doing, et cetera. So, yeah, it's just a ranking of where second, third, fourth, and fifth comes. Yeah, but look, Northland's not a foregone conclusion in that if people really didn't want the front runner you could get tactical voting once they see who's got the best chance. But that's less likely to happen in Northland. Island is the perhaps more likely one where you could get a, like, if people really didn't want National to win, you could get Labour voters saying, well, we've got no chance of keeping the seat, so maybe we'll tactically vote for RAF. Now, I don't think that will happen because, actually, I've been involved in campaigns where you're trying to get people to vote tactically and you need to start around three, four months out getting that message. It's not sort of a last-minute thing. Yeah, I'm picking that RAF won't get there for, for top in Islam. The one that could have that sort of effect take place but won't materially change the end result is the possibility of Brooke Van Velden beating Simon O'Connor in Tamaki. And ACT has got a strategy of doing that, and they've been running that strategy for three or four months. Is that a possibility that Simon O'Connor could find himself, because he's so far down the list, actually losing because the Labour and Green supporters in Tamaki, knowing that their vote doesn't count at all really, could upset the apple cart, vote against Simon O'Connor by backing Brooke Van Velden for, for the ACT Party. 
Yeah, that is definitely a plausible scenario. Having said that, I haven't seen any signs from sort of the Labour hierarchy to do that, possibly because as much as they probably aren't great fans of National generally or Simon, I think they don't see it in their long-term interest to have act with two electric seats. The left has always wanted to not act out of parliament. They uh, want to change the law so that you, if you're under 5%, even if you win an electorate seat, you don't get list MPs. Now, as it happens, Act's now polling pretty well. So I haven't seen signs that Labour's going to do that, but that is going to be that tactical decision Labour voters in Tamaki will make is do they vote for the Labour candidate or do they vote tactically? There's always a risk voting tactically that the people just tick the ACT candidate and then by default go straight across and tick ACT as well. And so <laughs> so you get a, yes, you're voting tactically, but also you run the risk of them doing both ticks for the same party, which wasn't what you kind of intended. <laughs> from no, the- and... There was an interesting case in the US about it wasn't tactical voting, but tactical campaigning where the Democrats got their packs to spend lots of money attacking the most right wing candidates in Republican primaries. And of course, having I mean, Democrats attack them saying, oh, they're too right wing, help them in the Republican primaries. So It worked in that they all won the Republican primaries, but what the Democrats were counting on was they would be weaker general election candidates. Now, they got it right. They beat almost every one of those Republican candidates in the general election. But if they had miscalculated, they would have then ended up being responsible for electing some of the most right-wing, election-denying Republican candidates there are, rather than more moderate Republicans. So there's always that risk with tactical voting. If it works, it's great. If it doesn't work, you can end up saying you really don't like. Do you think that this right-left argument or the right-left paradigm in politics these days is still valid, or are we talking now a a bigger change from right and left. We're talking about globalism versus nationalism or control versus freedom. Yeah, look, that's a great question. There's still some who see it traditional economic terms left, right, but I think populism, anti-establishmentism, I'd probably call it. I see that with the, the freedom parties a lot is certainly quite a big factor. And look, If you look at the election tax policies, for example, Hmm. I mean, nationals leaving the 39% tax rate in place, I understand absolutely why they're doing that politically, but they're actually campaigning on we're going to give a millionaire the exact same tax cut as someone on $70,000. That's not a huge right-left divide. That's the sort of thing, you know, um, any moderate party could do, etc. I think this election, I think competence is a factor. I think there is that 
anti-establishment's effect. Uh, but for a large portion of the electorate, maybe 40 50%, it is still pretty classical left-right. But we saw last election, National got 25% because Labour were seen as competent on COVID. Uh, we've learned our lesson there, probably. And where Labour picked up the most votes were all the traditional national areas, rural New Zealand, etc. all the, the wealthy seats. They won the party vote in every seat except Epson. So that tells me that, no, people aren't just voting on this of economic left-right. Of course, the economy's tanked since then and is in really bad shape. I mean, the projections from Treasury are awful. The levels of debt, you know, I, I remember the Labour Party campaigning against John Key and his government, producing charts with the debt levels going up, ignoring the fact that we'd had the Christchurch, two Christchurch earthquakes, which required recovery and borrowing to do that. Those borrowing levels that were under John Key are a fraction of what the Ardern Hipkins regime has ended up borrowing. And we're in a very dire strait now, and we're seeing that the penalty of that was inflation out of control interest rates uh, going to levels that we really haven't seen since the 1990s. Yeah, and what's quite scary too, Cam, is global economic shocks tend to come around every 10 years. Mm. And what good economic management is, is pay your debt down and get your debt low when it's good times. So as well as 73, we have the oil shock. Mm. 87 was the share market crash. Yep. 99 or 98 was the Asian crisis, and 2008 was the GFC. Now, here's the thing. People think we've had the shock because of COVID. COVID was a physical shock, yep. as in there was a pandemic, we closed things. It wasn't an economic realignment. So I actually think we are overdue for the usual 10 to 12-year global economic readjustment, I guess you call it. And yes, we haven't had that period of three or four years we've been, been paying down the debt. We've been massively increasing it. And we're, you know, one of the smaller, most exposed. So I think it's a huge concern. And, you know, uh, we're getting a bit geeky here, but the International Monetary Fund surveyed 160 countries on their growth prospects. And we weren't last, Cam. We were 159th. We were just ahead of Equatorial Guinea. Which is a which is an economic basket case. Well, I don't yeah. know what it is. I just sort of like assume it. it kind of looks like it is, yeah. you know. But there's 158 countries ahead of us on those In rankings. Terms of their forecast growth. Yeah, I don't think we've got any growth forecast, and I certainly can't see it continuing if the Labour Green coalition continues on. I think it's just going to get materially worse, and I think Grant Robertson is going to go down in history as perhaps one of the worst finance ministers we've ever had. Well, of course, it won't just be a Labour-Green coalition. It's been 15 months since Labour-Greens looked like they could possibly form a government. The only way Labour gets re-elected is they will have to rely on both the Greens and Te Party Māori. And, you know, let's just say I doubt that's going to be a more fiscally responsible government. No, it'll be insane. So just to round out our talk about the wasted vote and where it's going, your advice to people that are considering uh, voting for a anti-establishment or freedom-type party is what? Well, generally, if they're consistently polling below 3%, it's very, very, very unlikely they will make it. 
And if you want to change the government, if you want your vote to count, you need to vote for a party that is either well above the 5% threshold or based on history, very likely to make that threshold. Or, of course, that they're very likely to win an electorate seat. And don't look at just one poll. Don't trust polls leaked by parties themselves. Look at the average of the public polls. Yeah, so you've got to take into account the Roy Morgan, the Taxpayers' Union poll, One News, News Hub, and the rare polls that the New Zealand Herald and stuff do. But if you look at all of those And polls, Talbot Moles. Yeah, Talbot. Only when they're public, though, because they like leaking them when they're um, good news for the Labor Party. They do. But, uh, but, yeah, if you can get the public polls that come out with that, average those, track that yourself and have a look at the trend. I, that's what I always say, look at the trend. And uh, just a final note, I guess, I'm seeing now the usual pattern starting to emerge in polling if you ignore 2020. The usual pattern is the larger parties slip away towards the conclusion of the campaign and the, and some of the minor parties uh, just come up a bit, and that's what it's starting to look like now. Is that yeah, we've certainly seen that because it's easier during the campaign for the minor parties to start to get more publicity. They're spending on billboards, etc. Mm. Um, so we're certainly seeing that. Other thing we're thinking about is people keep thinking it's only, I'm not sure if it's like six or seven weeks till the election, but I believe the election starts on the 3rd of October. That's when advanced voting starts. The election is not the 14th of October. That's just when they count the votes. So in terms of persuading people who to vote for. They've got to do it before October the 3rd. Only less than four weeks left to really persuade people. The last two weeks of the campaign is actually get out the vote. So if you're looking at the polls, there's only around three, three and a half more weeks of polling to focus on because once people start voting, we're going to be having the results set. I mean, yeah, of course, you still have half vote on election day. What well, might not even be half this year. It might be a third. This is going to be a tricky one for you, David. But do you agree with Winston Peters? I can almost hear the no coming out of your mouth. <laughs> yeah. Do you agree with Winston Peters that there shouldn't be any polling once voting starts? No, and here's why. Winston's long, long said this. First of all, you could ban publishing of polls, but look, social media age, strides in effect. Everyone would then just be leaking the polls, rumouring the polls. It would actually work. You'd make the political parties more powerful because they would actually still be doing internal polling, so they would know what's happening. And also you've got overseas polling companies. There's a Aussie firm that polls for a British newspaper. How do you stop them, basically, et cetera? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think what Winston's getting at is polls can be self-fulfilling prophecies. And if there's bad polls out there, they can damage a party. If a poll says you're at 1% and you're at 4.5%, people then might not vote for you. Yeah. General advice, again, is don't cherry-pick the polls. Uh, look at the averages there. I've actually studied the election results since 1996 for every poll and every party. The mm. average error tends to be around 1.1%. So they're not – yeah, in New Zealand, they've actually been reasonably accurate. 
So that's a big difference if you're a small party, but it's not so di- not so big a- a- an issue if you're the Labour Party or the National Party. No, well, one of the things in New Zealand, because we do have MMP, is a 1% polling error is a one-seat difference. Mm. In Aussie, a 1% change in the polls could be 10 marginal seats. In the wow. US, 1% change in the polls could be 50 electoral votes. And in the UK, 1% can be... You know, 40 electorates. So in New Zealand, what's critical is if the polls are accurate around will a party make the threshold for that's like make or break. Yes. But you know, whether national gets 36 or 37% is important to national, it may be important to forming the government, but it doesn't make a huge impact in terms of is there a vote for change? You know, we know that Labour got 50% last election, and they're now polling somewhere in the high 20s to low 30s. So there's no dispute they have lost a massive amount of support. Yeah, exactly. And and, and that's the thing that the that's where the blood is running right now is the Labour Party has bled away nearly half of their support that they had in 2020, which is pretty spectacular. Before, normally losing more than 10% of your support is regarded as a bad result. To lose 40%, you know, let's say 1996 National got 34%, and yeah. 1999 they lost office on 30%. So they lost around 11% of their support only, uh, 11, you know, 4% yeah, yeah. out of 34. Helen Clark, I think she left office on 34%. She got 40% the time before. She So they lost in 2008 around 15% of their support. We've got government that got the only majority ever under MMP, and they're actually now the lowest polling party in government in the history of MMP too. No, no, you know, we've not had a governing party before drop into the 20s. Normally that's where oppositions are, yeah. let alone one that was at 50%. And in my last poll for Taxpayers Union, what was interesting is they're losing it everywhere. They're losing some to national, some directly to ACT, some to the Greens, some to Te Pahi Māori, and some to New Zealand First. And that's, again, quite unusual too. Normally you sort of people tend to think national loses to Labour or Labour to national, but Labour's losing to everyone. Yeah, so they're political cancer, this election, really. Yeah, but tell you what, though. They're still in it, though. Every poll still has the centre-right only at sort of 61 to 65 seats. Uh, is more likely than not there's a change of government, but it's far from a done thing. If um, I've actually been looking back at the past MMP elections, John Key, everyone thinks he won landslides. He generally only had 61, 62, mm. 63 seat majorities. So what if we had to pick a year that this, the feeling of the polling is giving you, is this a, a 1990 landslide like Jim Bolger, or is it a 1996 with the minor parties surging up? Or I think it's it, a 2002. Up until oh, a month ago, I thought it was more 2005, which is National and Labour, neck and neck, et cetera, really tight race. And and I may change this. In 2002, that's when National collapsed its vote and both New Zealand First and United Future sprung up and got well over 5%, mm. et cetera. The difference here is it's happening to Labour and they're in government, not opposition. Yeah. But that seems to be what what's happening. Like, 
Tea Party in Maori and some of the polling I'm seeing, they're actually getting up at 4 or 5%, et cetera. New Zealand First has obviously been up in the polls the last two, three months. Well, your good friend Bill English might get the monkey off his back of the 20.92%. Well, I was going to say, I haven't seen any polls that has Labour at 21, but Roy Morgan does have them at 24. So, yeah. Well, we'll see. Acton, that poll was only 6% behind. So someone pointed out if they can take 3% more off Labour, then the leaders' debate should be between Chris Luxon and David Seymour. (laughs) (laughs) I think Winston would have something to say about that. Yes. Yeah. Thank you very much for explaining uh, the effect of the wasted vote and a little bit extra about polling. Thanks a lot for coming on The Crunch. Thanks, Cam. Enjoyed it. No worries. David certainly shared a few insights there. It's amazing that Labour's support is bleeding out and it's unheard of that a party would shed 40 to 50% of their support in just three years. Governments have changed on swings much lower than that. Don't forget to send comments on David's interview to inbox at realitycheck.radio or text to 2057. This is The Crunch with Cam Slater. Conversations with a side of controversy right here on RCR.